Hello, and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, and I serve as the staff pastor at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. And today we're going to be looking briefly at the book of Esther, which is the last lesson in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Sunday School Curriculum titled Come Follow Me for the month of July. Next month, next week's lesson, we will be in the book of Job, and then the rest of August will be in the book of Psalms. But today we are, again, like I said, looking at the book of Esther. This isn't a long book. It's not a terribly long book, and uh, it's a very interesting book. It's a bit controversial, actually, the book of Esther. Uh, There have been debates as to whether or not Esther was actually inspired whether or not it should be in the biblical canon. Uh, those debates have happened throughout the centuries. And uh, I, I agree with uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on this point. It should be in the Bible, and you should read it. All right, so um, this is good. And <clears throat> just a couple of interesting notes about Esther. I, I preached on Esther in 2018. So if you uh, were interested, you could go to our church's sermon library, and you could check out the, I don't know, five, six sermons that we did on the book of Esther if you want a more in-depth study. But I uh, just want to give you a few interesting tidbits about this book as to why it's controversial and why it's beneficial also. One of the main reasons why it's controversial is because no names for God appear in this book. Now, that is not to say God is absent from this book, but he is not named in this book, which is Pretty interesting. Now, the Song of Solomon is that way, too. Uh, when do we get to the Song of Solomon? Maybe we don't do the Song of Solomon. It's just, it's just, sorry, it just hit me. Oh, yeah, I don't think it's on the list. Huh. So maybe I disagree with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on this point. I believe the Song of Solomon is, has a place in the biblical canon, and it should be studied and looked at. But Okay, well, that's interesting. No, that, that threw me off a little bit. I shall keep going. No names for God appear in the uh, book of Esther. Also, the author is unknown. The author is unknown. Kind of like the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Kind of the same deal there, though we have some clues to the book of uh, Hebrews. But Esther, no idea. No idea who wrote it. It is one of a few Old Testament books that is not quoted in the New Testament. Okay, or referenced. So depending on how you count what's a quote, what's a reference, it could be up to 10 books in the Old Testament that are not found in the New Testament, and this is one of them, all right? And uh, what's interesting, too, about this book that makes it a little different, and some see it as a downside as to whether or not it should be in the biblical canon, is that there's a lot of focus on human effort. Naturally, with it not mentioning the name of God, you have a lot of the narrative just describing uh, what man is up to, what, what man is doing. And so that's, that's different. That's quite a bit different, all right? Now, what are the, uh, the positives? Well, it is a beautiful story. It's a, it's a very beautiful story, and we'll go over the synopsis of it here momentarily. It, it is a book unlike any other in the Bible. It is utterly unique. Uh, the, the plot, the narrative, very, very unique. It gives us great historical insight. There are all kinds of uh, 
facts about history that are found in the book of Esther that are helpful to us as we look at the context of that time during Israel's history. Uh, Esther was written uh, about a time that was similar to Ezra and Nehemiah. Last week we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's all after the Babylonian captivity, as now Persia is ruling, and they're coming back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city walls, trying to rebuild the city itself. Esther takes place during that same time frame. In fact, in Bible college, the class that was offered was Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, those three books together because they covered the same time period. This shows us, the book of Esther, where the Feast of Purim comes from. Maybe you've heard of the Feast of Purim, recognized by the Jewish people. It's on the Jewish holidays calendar. The book of Esther tells us where that came from. And it also shows us the reality of God's providence in an amazing way. And we'll finish with that, so I'll come back to that in a little bit. An overview of the book of Esther. Well, uh, like I mentioned, the uh, king uh, was Persian at this time. So this is after the Babylonian captivity. Persia's in charge, and there is a king, and he's the king of Persia. Xerxes, you can call him. And he was not a good guy at all. He was a man who loved his alcohol and loved his women. Perhaps you know some guys like that. Perhaps you are a guy like that. <laughs> well, uh, this this guy, he was not a good guy. And it starts off, Esther chapter 1, starts off by the king upsetting his wife, the queen. Her name is Vashti. And and he upset her by just treating her like a, like a rude man. He was harsh with her. And she said, you know what? I'm done uh, helping you out in your foolish, sinful endeavors. And so they had a split. Well, now he needs to replace the queen. And what does an ignoramus like this do? Well, he sets up basically, uh, you, you know that show, The Bachelor? Well, that's basically what he does. He says, I'm The Bachelor now, and I want a whole bunch of female contestants. Who's going to be my wife? Now, what's different between the TV show The Bachelor and what this king was doing is that uh, <laughs> these women weren't exactly uh, signing up for this. You know, with The Bachelor, you can apply to be one of the bachelorettes who tries to win over The Bachelor, so it's like a willing thing, and very few are chosen out of all the applicants. Not so much here. And uh, they weren't exactly you know, going on little dates. Uh, women would come in and spend a night with the king, if you get my meaning, and he was looking for who would please him the most. So uh, not, not exactly a role model, this king. So uh, let's actually jump into Esther chapter 2 and take a look at what the text says. Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus, again, you can call him Xerxes, had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in the place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So to sum up, 
the plan from the king's counselors here, the plan is let's go get a bunch of young virgin girls, doll them up. We'll give them all the makeup and stuff that they want. Um, they'll be kept in the harem. You've got your guy who supervises the women. He's a eunuch and, uh, he'll make sure that, you know, they all stay there and they're happy. Well, it's like a green room where they're all just be sitting around eating hors d'oeuvres and, uh, they'll be dressed up and, uh, you know what? They'll just come in one by one and have their time with you until you find the one that you think is, uh, is a suitable replacement for your ex-wife Vashti. And of course the king being, you know, the boorish man that he was, he said, yeah, let's do that. Okay, that'll make me happy. So that's his plan. Let's keep reading. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was at the citadel of Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei. I don't know how to say that name. I don't know how to say most of these names. The son of Kish, a Benjamite. So Mordecai was a Benjamite who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So you got Mordecai, a Benjamite who's been through the ringer, with the Babylonian captivity and everything, and now he's coming back. And he's got a younger cousin named Esther, Mordecai and Esther. And he has been taking care of Esther, who is an orphan, but she's older now. And he's just been taking care of her as though he's her father, but they're actually cousins. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 8. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken into the king's palace, into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food and gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. So big, big green room, and she got the best place with seven maids. That's amazing. Verse 10, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. All right, so Mordecai told her as she was headed into this situation, the bachelor, kind of, but not really the bachelor, Hey, don't, don't let them know you're a Jew. So she didn't. And she found favor there. And uh, the, the eunuch who was in charge of the women, he thought that she was great. And so there she is um, waiting for her turn. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months, under the regulations for the women for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. So let's just stop right there for a moment. There was, there was a year that passed. They were taken to the harem, and they had a year, six months with the oil and myrrh, six months with the cosmetics. I mean, they, they were taking their time in this green room, getting ready for their night with the king. Well, after a year had passed, 
verse 13, the young lady, would go in to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shazgaz. What a name. The king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. If you don't know what that is, just Google it. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So we'll pause there again. She got to take whatever she wanted into the king's room when it was her number was called. I mean, you can just kind of imagine this, right? Like, okay, number 47, the king will see you now. And then there she goes in for her night with the king. And uh, if the king's happy, she gets, she gets to stay, perhaps becoming a concubine or, in Esther's case, becoming the next wife. We'll look at that in a moment. Uh, perhaps the woman being totally sent away and uh, just, yeah, I'm done with you. I did, I did not enjoy you. All right, well, let's, uh, let's keep reading. It's going to be Esther's turn here now in chapter 2, verse 15. Now, in the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go in to the king. She did not request anything except what Hegai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken into or to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. Okay, well, uh, this is just an interesting set of circumstances, isn't it? Interesting is just one of those words you can use for all sorts of occasions. It can mean something bad. It can mean something good. It's just a good cop-out adjective. This is interesting. Well, um, remember last week, if you've been following along week by week, there were three themes of the Old Testament that we looked at as manifested in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. One of those themes is that God uses messed up, broken, sinful, rebellious people. And we see it here again. Esther and Mordecai. You can walk away from that chapter thinking one of two things. You can hear all of that and say, wow, Mordecai and Esther, very shrewd people. And uh, this is really the Lord's work. The Lord's hand is upon these holy servants of God. Even though God's name isn't in there, you could walk away with that. Or you could walk away with this. Mordecai and Esther are pretty jacked up people, but the Lord was using them anyway. (laughs) I, I go with that second option, and here's why. 
just from this chapter. Mordecai instructed Esther to essentially be deceitful, to hide, to not say what her ethnicity is, her race, the Jewish race, to to cover up her Jewishness. Now, is a Jew supposed to be ashamed of his calling? No. Uh, Is a Jew supposed to be scared of men? No. The Lord fights his battles for him. Uh, We see that over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New. So what is he doing saying, Esther, uh, be really quiet about all that Jewish stuff? Well, he's giving in to the fear of man, isn't he? He's being very pragmatic. He's being very flesh-oriented. And what does Esther do? Well, she submits to that bad instruction. Uh, She should know better, but she submits to that bad instruction. And she also goes into the king's palace and spends her night with the king, which is, of course, fornication, You could certainly make the case there's adultery going on, too, depending on certain details, but it's sexual immorality, unless we want to read into it that she didn't lose her virginity to the king that night, like all the other women, as the king was taking the virginity of young women one by one, probably in successive nights. Maybe she was just noble and didn't sleep with the king, but the text actually tells us otherwise, indicates otherwise. We would really have to be uh, giving a a lot of benefit of very little doubt. (laughs) So um, they're they're not making great decisions here. They're not making very principled decisions. They're making very pragmatic decisions. And yet the Lord is in it, and the Lord is using them, and the Lord is going to redeem his people through all this stuff that's going on. And I think that's quite amazing. Well, to to kind of round out the story for you, in case you're not going to read the book of Esther, basically what happens next is Mordecai, the uncle, or not the uncle, the cousin, the older cousin of Esther, hears of a plot to assassinate the king while he's hanging around, loitering at the city gate. He hears of that plot, and he gets word to Esther, and uh, God works it out to where the king is protected and not assassinated. Well, the king didn't know that it was Mordecai who who did this, and the whole assassination overthrow uh, is is largely forgotten. And the king appoints uh, this man, Haman, a bad guy who hates the Jews, an evil, wicked man, to kind of run things for him. And he has this incident with Mordecai as they run into each other in society, and he says, you know, to Mordecai that he needs to bow down and to worship and honor the king. Well, at this point, Mordecai <clears throat> grows a backbone here and uh, is not so much ashamed of his Jewishness, it seems, and says, no, I'm not going to do that. And Haman says, well, you're going to die. And so the the rest of the book is basically based on Haman having it out for not just Mordecai, but the Jews as a whole, the king being ignorant, this foolish, blubbering idiot, and Esther kind of rising to the top as the one who's in between Mordecai and the king and can influence the king to direct Haman away from harming the Jews. And at the end, of course, the Lord uses all of this. He's in all of this to protect and redeem his people, and the Jewish people are protected 
and redeemed. And Esther was very influential in the whole process in helping the Jewish people survive and even thrive in this really dicey situation. And there's this famous quote from the book of Esther where uh, Esther, it's said of Esther, maybe that she was put in this position for such a time as this. God has called you to such a time as this. And that's a phrase that gets used quite a bit in the Christian world as uh, we consider God's working in the world and putting people at the right place at the right time and say, you know, you can say, for, for such a time as this, God had you here. Well, how can we deduce that God is at work and that God put Esther there and that God kind of arranged all the pieces here when he isn't mentioned in the book at all? Well, the book is in the Old Testament. It's in the Bible, after all. And so there, of course, is a rightful assumption that, of course, the author intended for us to understand that God is involved. But even more than that, as we look at life generally, God is always involved. God is omnipresent. That means he's, he's everywhere at once. He fills both heaven and earth, Jeremiah 23 says. God is uh, omnipotent. He's all-powerful, and he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. So uh, we can't ever say that anything happens apart from God's presence, his power, and knowledge. And this is what we call God's providence. God's providence, that he's providing, that's where the word provide comes from, that he's providing for people and events and circumstances through his own sovereign working in the world. There's a guy named Augustus Hopkins Strong who said that providence is God's attention concentrated everywhere. God's attention concentrated everywhere. That's what uh, God's providence is. And there's so much to be said about God's providence. This is a book by John Piper. And when I hold it this way, you might not be able to tell how big of a book it is, but bang, look how big that book is, all about God's providence, somewhere around 700 pages, just simply titled Providence by John Piper. Well, um, to get maybe a better handle on what providence is, I'm going to share with you this uh, article from Got Questions. I love gotquestions.org, G-O-T, Got Questions. It says, Divine providence is the governance of God by which He, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole, the physical world, the affairs of nations, human destiny, human successes and failures, and the protection of his people. This doctrine stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by chance or fate. Through divine providence, God accomplishes his will. To ensure that his purposes are fulfilled, God governs the affairs of men and works through the natural order of things. The laws of nature are nothing more than God's work in the universe. The laws of nature have no inherent power, Rather, they are the principles that God set in place to govern how things normally work. They are only laws because God decreed them. And then it goes on to talk about more. How does providence work with uh, human will? And that's a, uh, that's a big discussion, and you'll never really come to a satisfactory answer on that one. Just going to share that with you. But as you read through the book of Esther and so much of the Old Testament, what you see really is God's providence. God is at work 
in the world. He's at work among his people. He's guiding, directing his people into salvation and into uh, relationship with him. So uh, those are just a few thoughts. There's an overview of the book of Esther, a few thoughts about the book, and this encouragement for you to look for God's providence in all things. So a little bit of a different lesson today. I hope that was helpful, though. And uh, again, next week, we are going to start in the book of Job. I'm excited about that. The book of Job. We'll look at it next week. Thanks for joining me, and God bless.